What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. You're listening to Uncovered with Barrett Sundarosan and Jared Kimber on the 99.94 Network. He actually has a legitimate excuse for not being on this episode. I think he's currently in air in transit. Was he just landed in Adelaide? I don't know. Either way, he has a he has a legitimate excuse. Not like the time he said, what, what was it? He ate ice cream and that ruined his life, which I suppose could be a legitimate excuse depending on how you look at these things. We have plenty of cricket being played this week. We'll go through India, Australia, uh, a little bit on New Zealand, Sri Lanka. I'm just looking at my notes. If you're watching on YouTube, I'm trying to remember. I just wrote down all these notes. I can't remember any of them. Um, I want to talk about uh, Deandra Dotton a little bit and Bangladesh Island. Have I missed any games? I feel like there's another game going on. I've completely forgotten. There is so much cricket at the moment. It's this has become one of the busiest points in cricket. And the reason it's one of the busiest points of cricket, of course, is that everyone is trying to finish their uh, series and schedules before the IPL starts. And so what I suppose historically has not been uh, a hugely busy, there's always been cricket at this time. That, that's uh, There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's not been the busiest time um, traditionally. It has suddenly become absolutely nuts, uh, very consistently. So uh, let us get on uh, with India Australia. So, Mitchell started to the wickets in the second game, third game, second game. Uh, and I thought it was really, really interesting that you know there was one ball, and I think Kartikeya put up a tweet about it, that it had swung like 2.6 degrees or something massive. And the reason I think that's interesting, if you go back, last World Cup, Australia had taken the new ball out of Mitchell Stark's hands. And if you go back a year before that, they had he'd started bowling the wobble ball these aren't accidents right it's very hard for a bowler to go between being a conventional swing bowler and being a wobble ball bowler even someone like uh jimmy anderson it took him a long time to be able to perfect the two different styles and most bowlers don't most bowlers now are just one or the other and modern players think that the wobble ball is better so they're going with that and so swings dying a little bit from that perspective and you know if you think about mitchell stark he's a fascinating cricketer because He's a new ball bowler, but by that we mean he's a, like a, the newest ball bowler. He's a guy that literally needs to be the first over, right? You know, he's probably a guy who's better in the first three balls of the first over than he is in the second three balls. I've never looked that up, but that might be true. Um, but he really does like that very, very new ball and what the ball is doing um, to swing, uh, swing for that. Um, and 
he's then not as useful for a long period of time unless he's going up against someone who particularly has a problem with left arm um, players or with the sort of springy bounce that he gets. But he's not as useful, uh, you know, for long periods of the game until the ball starts to reverse swing. Then he becomes, you know, almost unplayable again at that stage. And generally he gets the ball to reverse swing longer than he does uh uh, conventional swing also now he's bowling to p- probably players you know number four number five number six number seven maybe even further on in the order and because of his pace and his left arm um, and the fact it's reversing that's too much for too many of those players and we've seen him be absolutely brilliant I, I always thought he was at his best in one day cricket probably between the 30 and 40th over mark that's when he really had the big impact because just as teams were about to kick on he would come on and you know um, demoralize them uh, despite the fact that it's the new ball stuff that we remember more often from him. But that has all changed over what? I would say I would say the last two years, everything about Mitchell Stark. I would say in the last two years, everything about Mitchell Stark has changed from that point where they really tried to get him to it's from it's it's the next step on from developing the wobble ball. It's actually being able to, you know, deliver it um consistently. From that point onwards, that really changes who he is. Now if Mitchell Stark can nail the wobble ball and he can bowl around the wicket, um, angling in to right-hand batters, I don't really know how anyone's ever going to play him again because, you know, for long periods of time, he should be absolutely great. But the wobble ball does rely on a sense of accuracy. Uh, you know, you you know the best exponents of it. I don't think it's a, an accident that, you know, um, Muhammad Asif and Stuart Clark were two of the early uh proponents of it and then jimmy anderson because they have the ability with that delivery to keep the stumps in play and the outside edge in play at all time mitchell stark's not quite that kind of bowler and so i thought it was an interesting choice to push him down that that theory especially so late in his career um if he can ever nail it obviously i take all that back and it's fine but realistically all of his strong points come from something that at this stage are not as important as they used to be you know early swing is not as important as it used to be reverse swing is not as important as it used to be so the last thing he's sort of left with is you know the ability to bowl fast and short but if he can combine even let's say 25 percent of the time he can bowl a decent wobble ball and you know the other 25 to 30 percent of the time he can swing the new ball that's huge because then you've got a bowler with multiple multiple weapons and you know perhaps australia have bitten off more than they can chew with that sort of thing but it's a really interesting thing going forward and i thought in that last world cup they basically took the world's best white ball destroyer jasper Bumrah might be a better all-round bowler and Rashid khan might be you know more consistent at what he does but as far as actually destroying teams especially up top and in that middle period i don't think anyone's ever had the impact that Mitchell Stark does, you know, even, even less if Malinga, even great bowlers like Joel Garner and Glenn McGrath didn't really do that. The only other one, of course, is probably was a Macram in that sort of peak period where he would come on and do that. Um, and I think Mitchell Stark's figures are still better, but from a lot less one day is, uh, and you know, the, the sort of wickets he takes are just ridiculous, but the game has changed a little bit around him. So how they deal with that and how they upskill him, because I was thinking about this the other day. I think we talked about this on a, on a previous wagon wheel. That there is a a very genuine um, fear that Australia is moving out of that generation of the the four great fast bowlers. One of them is obviously never. We never even got to see the most of him. Uh, the other three are changing who they are as bowlers, and you know, slowing down in different ways, and um, you know, maturing in different ways. And they might still go on to have really good careers for a long period of time. You don't really want to lose Mitchell Stark at this stage because I would. I think Hazelwood's fairly un, uh, irreplaceable and so is Cummins, but Stark is something that 
I don't think Australia's ever had a bowler like Stark before. Alan Davidson and Bruce Reed, Mitchell Johnson are all fantastic left arm seamers, but they're all very different than what he does. So it's not an easy thing for Australian cricket to replicate. Uh, but anyway, very, very interesting from that point of view. And, and the Stark thing follows into the Indian side of this. Someone sent me a tweet uh, this week going through all the key times when a left-arm bowler has taken, you know, a bag of wickets against India, uh, I think from 2012 onwards. Uh, Junaid Khan's name was in there. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the others that have done it. Obviously, Stark was in there. And they, they were suggesting that there was a pattern there that left-arm seamers have dominated India. Uh, traditionally, when I've looked those numbers up, that's not been the case. Uh, England was the team that had the players probably with the uh, – the biggest problem with left arm seam. Um, but the other thing is when you look for a, a, a pattern like that, you have to remember that there's now just a phenomenal amount of left arm seam bowlers. So we're in a generation now where, you know, you know, Pakistan can go into a test match and people can say, are they picking too many left arm seamers? You know, if you go before Bruce Reed, you know, Bruce Reed's sort of the first one that sort of breaks through. And then obviously Wasim Akram changes everything just after him. Before that, they weren't really left-arm seam bowlers. I don't think a left-arm seamer had ever taken 200 test wickets, for instance. Um, you used them, and they were good, but they weren't fetishized the same way they are now. Uh, you know, Bill Vos, I don't think it's a mistake that one of the bodyline bowlers was a left-arm seam bowler, um, but that wasn't discussed in that way, you know, back then. We didn't think about things in that way. Uh, you know, Garfield Sobers is probably the greatest left-arm seam bowler if it wasn't Alan Davidson. Well, actually, Alan Davidson was probably slightly better than him, but both of them took a lot of wickets. But even with Sobers, we don't know how many wickets he took with seam and, uh, you know, not with seam. And he wasn't even the only left-arm bowler who did that. Carson Garvey did that as well. So we have had, you know, quite a few left-arm seam bowlers who were handy or were very good, but they didn't pull up massive numbers like their right-armers did. Everything's changed now, and I think that there are obviously quite a lot of left-arm seamers coming through um, in the way that things are happening from that perspective. So I wouldn't go out of my way to say that India has a problem with left-arm seam. That said, the Rohit Sharma was a very, very interesting one when, uh, you know, and I've done a video about that. If you have a look, him and Virat Kohli, don't, neither of them particularly like left-arm seam. It's certainly not something that I would say is either of their strengths. You only need one or two other players. I remember when, I'm trying to remember who the players were. I think it was Bairstow and Roy. can't even remember if there was another one. Bairstow and Roy on their own for a period of time, I think were both struggling with left-arm seam. It actually brought England's overall numbers down against left-arm seam quite dramatically. You know, it gave careers. Sheldon Cottrell probably had a one-day career on the back of coming in as a matchup against England, um, taking a bunch of wickets and sticking around for a whole World Cup on the back of that. Um, so it's something that's quite noticeable. But I think we, you know, there, there certainly is a um, uh, there certainly is a matchup issue for certain players. Um, but I don't think there's anything in the numbers, but I'll have a look at it another time. But I think the, the bigger, the bigger thing is that we have to get used to the fact that you know, left arm bowls are going to take wickets. That doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, if you're going out to Marco Janssen, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that you have a weakness against left arm um, pace bowling. It might mean that Marco Janssen is six foot eight with an incredibly high release point uh, and is very skillful and very fast for someone of his height, you know, and the same as Mitchell Stark. Mitchell Stark's getting you out, especially with a newer ball and it's swinging around. Well, that's kind of, what he should be doing. And if those two guys had, um, were right arm bowlers bowling at a similar pace with similar skills, they'd still be giving people a lot of problems. So I think that's definitely, um, something that happens. Uh, I just see that Manan has put in a super chat. I will get to the super chats. Um, 
at the end, I'll take any other questions as well. You know, big shout out to everyone who pops into the YouTube uh, comments, uh, even if you're not asking a question, if you're just putting something in there. So people like, you know, Carnival of Sorts, Jake, DM, Our Earth is the Best, Imad, um, Yassin, uh, and Wesh, and John. Um, you know, so big, big thanks to all of those for popping in as well. So, yeah, that's uh, India, Australia. I've kept a bit of an eye on it, but, um, you know, there's a lot of cricket being going on at the moment. So I just want to move on to... New Zealand, Sri Lanka, which I thought was uh, very, very interesting. So New Zealand have now won three straight tests. And to be fair, it won't look this way, but they've actually done them against fairly good teams. You know, Sri Lanka is, I think in this World Test Championship, Sri Lanka were a better team than New Zealand. They almost stole that first test as well. Um, I've done a video on them that'll be out in a couple of days. And then Cheyenne and I are doing another video on uh, New Zealand not long after that as well. Um, but there's no doubt that Sri Lanka is a very, very uh, decent team at the moment in, in, a, in a crowded field. Well, in a lack of crowded field, really. Um, if you look at the World Test Championship ratings, I think uh, points table, I should say, I think South Africa were third. Uh, I mean, you could say that England were probably better than them, but their you know, improvement came too late. South Africa is a very, very flawed team. And I think Sri Lanka is probably a very, very flawed team as well, but they've come up massively. Um, uh, there's... Dimas Karunaratna making runs in the first innings there again. I remember when I first started talking him up, a lot of ex-players were saying that, you know, opening in Sri Lanka is one of the easiest places on earth to open because, you know, quite often you don't get a lot of seam bowl to you. The pitches are so heavily in favour of the spinners um, that it's not the same kind of thing. And Karunaratna's numbers are obviously not as strong away from home. But when you do watch him away from home, you're still thinking you're watching a very, very sound player, a very smart player, the way he works through his game. I see, um, sadly, that it looks like he's going to step down from the captaincy, I think, after the Ireland matches. Although the, the quote I saw from Karunaratne was that he has uh, asked to um, he has asked to um, step down from the captaincy. However, um, <laughs> um, no one has answered his messages yet, so he's not sure if he has stepped down from the captaincy. Maybe I misread that, but that's the way I saw it. It was, it was very, very interesting. But I thought, again, he did very, very well. I want to talk about Dan and Jay De Silva. I think if you've hung around here long enough, you probably know I, I there should be a Dan and Jay De Silva or a DDS drinking game. Uh, I bring him up when I don't need to. He's one of those players that I, I think he's a really, really interesting cricketer. I think now he's averaging around high 30s. Um, he's about 31 um, in terms of uh, age. He's probably... He's a better bowler than Joe Root, but probably has to bowl more often. Um, and because of that, his figures maybe don't quite justify it. Whereas quite often, you know, Joe Root, England are bowling him when, you know, the there's a bunch of left-handers or, you know, the pitch is ragging at the end. Whereas I think with DDS, he has to bowl a little bit more. He's a brilliant fielder as well, just a brilliant mover in the field. Um, and, you know, I think it was, I'm trying to remember who ran out. Ran out Rory Burns once and just so quick um, to pick in the ball. So for me, you know, a proper three-tool cricketer, you know, lots to like um, about the way he plays. Um, I just had a look. I've now completely forgotten them, but I looked them up before. Just his uh, record in the last three years. Uh, last three years of Test cricket, he's been averaging 45. You know, his bowling, unfortunately, has dropped off at times. Although last two years of that, I think his bowling's been okay again. I think he took a couple of wickets, but he's certainly not bowling as much as, as he did before. Um, but just a very, very, a very, very underrated captain. It was good to see a captain, very, very underrated player. Very good to see him make some runs, um, uh, you know, in that final innings against New Zealand. Um, uh, love watching him back. I would love to go back and 
and ha- have a go at um, and uh, you know watch that whole innings. I think I've got the highlights. I'll have to I have to pop through them um, again. But um, a really big fan of him. The other person I want to talk about from that particular New Zealand Sri Lanka game was I've become obsessed with two things. Going on to Craig Info and going on to the scorecard. And when someone takes a wicket, you can obviously tap down and you get the commentary of it. And every time I see Blair Tickner's name in Take a Test Wicket, just press the little button and have a look. I haven't done the numbers on this at all, but they are definitely um, setting Blair Tickner up to be the next Neil Wagner. I think it was the first, he took the first three wickets in the first test against Sri Lanka in the second innings. And I, I think I, I had a look at the highlights of, of them and they just wasn't good. They weren't good deliveries. It's come to the point where, you know, I've seen him take a lot of wickets with very, very ordinary deliveries. And he's a really, really interesting cricketer because he looks really unrefined. There's almost a part of him that when he comes in, he looks like a um, club cricketer. You know, uh, it's not it's not a professional bowling technique. Um, you know, the mullet and the Mustache don't help any of that, I think, as well. But I do think, from that perspective, you know, I do think, I do think, from that perspective, that it's a, a sort of a he's, a he's a throwback in many, many ways. There's something a bit old about him, but yeah, it's something I've been noticing these wickets again. Um, and so I've done the drop down. I haven't gone back and watched all the highlights of that of that bowling, but I'd love to see if again we've got a similar sort of thing happening with Blair Tickner. Anyway, you're listening to Uncovered. If you want to definitely um, have one of your questions answered, uh, please feel free to do a super chat. Um, and thank you to everyone. You remember you can follow us live on YouTube. Uh, we're also now on Facebook, uh, Twitter. And you can just wait until Uncovered comes out in your in your headphones on your favorite podcast app. NFL Sunday Ticket is now on YouTube and YouTube TV, which means that you can stay close to your team even if you don't live in their town. Like, maybe you're a Raven who married a Seahawk who got a job in the land of the Falcons. With NFL Sunday Ticket, you can watch your team's out-of-market Sunday afternoon games no matter where you live because you shouldn't have to change teams even if you change towns. NFL Sunday Ticket, now on YouTube and YouTube TV. Go to youtube.com slash presale to get $50 off. Terms and embargoes apply. Offer ends 919. No refund. Subscription auto renews. Plenty more to talk about. He says, and now he has to look at his notes again. Oh, yeah, I went to talk about DeAndre Dotton. So I, th- I thought this is a really, really interesting one. So DeAndre Dotton was pulled out of the WPPL. Uh, WPPL? WPL? WPPL. That would have been annoying if they'd done that. Um, and the reason she was pulled out was because she had failed fitness. She obviously went straight to was Twitter or Instagram to question that. It took her a little while to come out with the full statement. But when you I read the full statement, it's really interesting. It feels like uh, a very, very classic case of a little bit of oh, what's the best way of putting it? Um I think I think it was partly confusion, but also partly perhaps they wanted Kim Garth more. And I think it was maybe some buyer's remorse uh, when it came to DeAndre Dotton and they looked for an excuse. But it also, when you read her statement, it does look like there was a legitimate amount of confusion between the uh, Gujarat um, physio and DeAndre Dotton. And so it's a real shame for her. She certainly is, you know, one of those players who has been a trailblazer for women's cricket. And probably, I haven't looked at her recent numbers, but I would have thought that she was still certainly someone who had a a genuine chance of, you know, being in that uh, tournament. So, I think uh, from that perspective, um, yeah, just a, a, it's a real shame that she's not there. But again, we've seen, you know, the, the West Indian women players re- being really, really outspoken. I th- they come from that same generation, that sort of Darren Sammy um, uh, generation where 
you know, a lot of those uh, men were very, very outspoken as well with what they believe. It's really interesting to see because in some ways what she said is probably going to worry future teams, maybe, you know, in that particular uh, tournament more than everywhere else. But it's a really interesting thing to come forward. But also for her, that's a huge payday to miss out on, right? Um, she's probably only got a few years left of, uh, you know, top-level performance. And uh, to miss out on the Women's Premier League uh, is is absolutely huge. So hopefully she gets a chance into the future. Uh, Bangladesh Island. So I think this was on Wagon Wheel. Someone asked me how I thought um, Bangladesh Island would go. And I and I said that I thought Ireland would struggle because they're not particularly good at bowling spin or playing spin. Um, that first game, I think they got absolutely smashed in the face and Eberdot Hassan <laughs> took four wickets, I think, in that particular game. Um, so it's not been good for Ireland so far. It's a really interesting series this because Ireland have been a very good one-day team for a long period of time, but it does feel that it is quite one-dimensional. We saw them win in the West Indies. We saw them have some success in against South Africa. We even saw them have some success against a sort of second-tier England team um, at times as well. Um, and they, that's been their sort of their specialty format. And you look at their 11 in test cricket, I still don't know how it goes, although to be fair, no one knows how it will go because we never see them play. Uh, and in T20 cricket, I thought they got some things together a little bit more in that last um, series. But still, they're not, you know... I don't think anyone thinks that they're a massively uh, T20-style team at the moment. Um, but they have been really, really smashed around a little bit. But there has been one interesting one. Someone actually asked this question, so I'll, I'll pop it up now. Someone said, what do you think of Gray and Hume? I didn't think it was viable to be bowling 75 miles per hour in international cricket anymore, um, but he's done well since coming in. So it's, it's really phenomenal that there, I still think there is a place for very, very accurate bowlers as long as they are skillful on another level and i do you know i don't know what graham hume's ceiling is but i don't think it's as high as other players but i talked to someone recently another uh, a former international player about someone they had faced who must have bowled around 75 maybe even low 70s and i said this guy never gets hit there must be something to this etc etc and they, uh, and they were and they were just saying look he just puts the ball in the exact right area every single ball and if you move around the crease um he finds it and i'm not sure if graham hume's quite at that level or that kind of bowler at the moment but i think there is especially now that we are seeing we're seeing this is the first generation where we're really seeing movement around the creeks in every single direction so we obviously had the 90s where people would charge down the wicket we then had pro well actually probably early 90s was you know uh inspired by java and me and dad was you know batting in your crease batting out your crease batting in your crease batting out your crease which other players had done before uh but he turned it into a bit of a limited overs style you then have the 90s where you have dean jones and other players sort of just running down the wicket you then have backing away um uh, you have then going across the crease. Then you have the ability to bat deep almost on your stumps. Um, and what you're seeing now is the players are incredibly apt at changing the pitch for every single delivery from a bowler, uh, which means that there's a new skill that probably needs to be developed which, in bowlers, which is p potentially just the ability to change your length probably more than your line very, very late. And... When someone's running at you, they're off balance and their head's moving. Whereas what players are doing now is, you know, they're either starting a long way out of their crease or they're just taking a, a you know, foot and a half shuffle step and their heads are very clear. You know, if you think back to the early players running across their crease to scoop, 
their heads are everywhere as you think of the later players getting down really early keeping their head still and just watching the ball onto the bat that's kind of what we're seeing with players using the crease so now we're it's it's a, i'm trying to think of a better way to put it but for the first time ever batters are changing what a good length is in all three formats of cricket and what a good line can be uh routinely at the moment and so perhaps for a very very accurate bowler who has been successful at 75 miles an hour it it's easier for them to adapt than it might be for an 85 mile an hour or a 95 mile an hour bowler so it's a really really interesting thing that i think it's been coming for a little while you know, we, we even saw it with the England players all batting on off stump for a while. You know, batters are really, when, I, I suppose, because the Kookaburra reinforced that ball in the white ball cricket and because the wobble ball in red ball cricket, batters have to come up with counters. And the counters at the moment seem to be, okay, well, we know where you roughly want to bowl this ball. So we are going to make it absolutely as hard for you to execute that as possible while keeping our head very, very still and either putting in the power position or in test cricket, sometimes not, you know, just moving to a whole new thing so that you might slightly over pitch or even occasionally slightly under pitch. And it's really, really interesting. The, the one shot you see the England players play quite a bit is like flicking very, very full balls from their pads just to the leg side. And that's not a bad delivery. That ball is probably hitting the top of the stumps. And if they were to do that from their crease, it's quite a dangerous thing to do. But they, they're they getting on top of it because they've already changed the length of the delivery. Um, so I, I'm not sure if Graham Hume is sort of part of that or, or anything else. But what I do think is that there is a changing uh, way that bowling is and there are different skills that might actually suit different kinds of bowls and perhaps Hume is one of those um but from Bangladesh's point of view I think Bangladesh have been brilliant so far in this series obviously I covered the England series so I watched that a lot more but there were a lot of good signs there me and Mohammed Issam did a podcast which probably is out next week I I say maybe um in fact it might be the week I'm I have no idea. It's out soon anyway. Uh, But we did a podcast where we're talking about the Bangladesh team and how it looks very, very exciting. Um, And one of the places we talked about is Ridoy. And watching, I think he almost made the 100 in the first game and then smashed it everywhere in the second game uh, from a lot fewer balls. There's certainly a really, really exciting centre to him as a player. And that's the sort of player we haven't seen from Bangladesh. The player who can consistently hit boundaries, put pressure back on the other teams with a high strike rate. You know, we have seen players with them that are very good at scoring with strike rates between 120 and 130. The ability to up that, it's been a huge issue for Bangladesh. And Ridoy certainly looks like that. And of course, uh, my 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 Bangladeshi um, DDS uh, is quickly becoming Shanto. I've seen he's made more runs again as well. So really interesting times for Bangladesh cricket. They... After that 2021 World Cup, where I think, well, me and Isam certainly were really harsh on how they played, how they prepared, what was going on in Bangladesh white ball cricket. They've made some really, really good moves of recent times, and they've got a far different and more exciting and energetic side coming through. So uh, really, really interesting. Anyway, I'll get to your chats. Anyone who has a super chat, I saw there is another one from uh, Gautam. Gautam has another one. So I'll get to the super chats after this. Gautam first. India's number five in test has been fascinating. Horses for courses ever since Rahane was dropped. Uh, Vahari in centre and Shreyas Iyer in subcontinent. But now that Shreyas has averaged 50 plus in home season, who bats number five in the World Test Championship final? Yeah, no, it is interesting. Um, it's become maybe one of the most interesting positions in test cricket. For whatever reason, suddenly everyone's making runs at number five. I think it was, was it 2023? 
Now, what year are we in now? 2022 was the first year ever. Number five's outscored the rest of the batters. Certainly when there's been a lot of runs scored, um, maybe maybe there was another year, but it was a very, very odd year from that perspective. Um, I would think that, you know, Vahari probably makes more sense in um, in the World Test Champion than Shreya Sire. But the problem, the, I like horses for courses, and I really do, but there is a certain point where if Shreya Sire is a better player than Vahari, the only way to get the most out of him is to develop him. Now, World Test Championship finals, maybe not the place to develop players, but you do understand what I mean. Like, you really, what you really want is probably three to four players who can play in all conditions um, without without you even having any doubts at all. Um, so I don't want Shreya to just become an Asian specialist. I think he should be given the ability to develop his game beyond that. But if they were to pick Vahari in this particular situation, I think that would also be fine. But but you're right, I think it is a very, very fascinating one. Uh, thank you for the super chat, Gautam. Now, Manan. Manan says, won't be able to catch this live, but thoughts on the big name players in the MLC draft. Can we expect to see more big names this season? Yeah, I think... <laughs> I mean, I was obviously very, uh, I was, I mean, I don't know how to put it, you know, I was involved, I was more involved in the Indian sides of things, as Indian side of things, God, I was not involved in the Indian side of things at all, I was more involved in the American side of things, so I helped with some of the analysis, the producing draft packs, and um, spent quite a, a lot of time having a look at that sort of stuff, but you know, had lots of conversations, some with teams, some with other people involved with Major League Cricket and everything else. There's been a, a very open What's the best way of putting it? A very open uh, feeling that a lot of the players are really interested in America as a market going ahead. You know, uh, a lot of them are, you know, want to live in America or spend time in America. And that's why a lot of those players moved over there in the first place, right? And so I think from that perspective, there was certainly always going to be a, um, there was going to be some players who were interested. So I think, I think there's a lot of other players who, I've had a couple of players and coaches contact me and just go, is this legit? And I think that's the big question that everyone's had so far. No one, no one wants to get involved in this if it's another Canada League or the Global T20, as it was called. But people do want to get involved with this if it becomes um, something a little bit different to that. So they want to get involved with it if there is a future in that league. If it looks like it's going quite well and, 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 and you know, they've had some troubles. The draft was put, pushed back. I think they've had some problems with the ownership at, at times, you know, getting the teams involved and everything else. So from that perspective, I do think it's been a little bit um, tricky on them. So, yeah, I do think there, but but I do believe there are certainly other big name players who are interested in it just because it's America as much as anything else, right? And so from that perspective, I think going ahead, we will continue uh, to see a few names pop in. I'm trying to, I, I just had a look at the draft. Yeah, I know of one very big name player who's not been drafted, who definitely was interested. So either they pulled out at the last minute or, you know, got a better offer. But I would say that that, there was quite a few other players who were in a similar situation Um, and some maybe who were just sniffing around, just seeing if it was for them going ahead. Thanks, Manon, for the super chat. I've already done Graham's question, haven't I? Uh, DM says, is Henry Nichols good? I've watched him as a New Zealand fan his entire career and I'm still not sure. He averages... He averages seemingly simultaneous too high and too low for his talent. Look, I've done a video on him before. He is one of the most confusing players in the world. I don't know is the is the best answer. He goes through periods where he looks like he's by far one of the best players going around, and he goes through periods where he can barely hit the ball off the square. And this is a good knock, um, but I'm not sure that at the moment 
I'm not sure we'll ever see him consistently make runs away from home in a test match, series after series. I just, I, I don't feel like I could believe in that um, as he, in him as a cricketer at the moment. So I suppose I lend towards him being slightly above average. I think that's fair. He's just made a double hundred again. And um, there's a lot of talent in him, but I can't say there's obviously something wrong and I haven't been able to quite get my finger on it, but there's obviously something within his game that doesn't allow him to make consistent runs. And I think that that is always, always makes me doubt a player a little bit more, even if their record is good. But as you said, does kind of feel like his average is too high and too low all at the same time. Vinay says, it seems like the quality of shots has gone down now that everyone is playing power shots without getting themselves in, especially in ODI cricket, as shown by India batting yesterday. I don't, well, I mean, well, I suppose we have Ireland and India in a couple of games in a row. I don't think you can, Vinay, I don't think you can just take that and then say that means that the quality of shots has gone down. Players play different kinds of shots now. The new ball is really, really a tricky time to bat in white ball cricket at the moment since that ball has been reinforced. You know, they took a little bit of the cork and the, something else off the ball to uh, reinforce it with a little bit more of that um, plastic underneath the seam. And, you know, players are struggling, I think, with that still. I, I mean, there's no doubt. Uh, the last couple of World Cups have certainly shown that it's very hard to score against that new ball. I don't think players are not playing themselves in. I would actually say that ODI cricket still played fairly conservatively. I'm not sure I sit there and think to myself, wow, um, they're all smashing the ball everywhere. I still think it's played fairly conservative. So I'm, I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I think if you go back and you look at some of the ways that one-day cricket was played, especially when players, you know, quite a few decades ago, they played a few big shots back then. So, yeah, I'm not sure I, Vinay, I'm not sure I really see this one. Imad says, why doesn't Island bowl George Dockerell? His bowling might have gone down um, a little bit in recent times, but he would have been more than handy in Bangladesh. Well, he got the yips. Imad, that's the real reason. He stopped bowling altogether. He's back in the team as a batter. That's why he's not bowling anymore. He's got to a point where I think he feels comfortable to bowl in T20 cricket. He has a sort of way that he bowls with his angles and everything there. But I feel that he doesn't quite back himself as much in, in one-day cricket. They, I don't think they want to ruin it, ruin him either. Like if he doesn't feel comfortable doing it, I don't think they want to keep throwing him the ball because it's my understanding, and I've never interviewed George and it's probably someone I should talk to at one stage, but it's my understanding that it was quite a grim bit. You, you had a guy who at 2021, people were talking about as a potential England player, um, you know, at, at the least a long-term, you know, fixture of Irish cricket. And I don't know what mid to late twenties, he's basically not a player anymore. The psychological impact of that, of just going, well, you know, we're in Bangladesh and left arm, uh, finger spin heaven here so let's chuck you in I, i'm not sure that they need uh or would want to do that i don't think he bowled today um i don't remember him bowling in the first game um either as you say but um i get it i get why they may not want to do it i think with george Dockerell, you kind of let him do what he wants and you hope that you know one or two years time he feels comfortable enough to bowl but he's not the bowler he was when he was young that's and, he, and he's never going to be that level so if you're keeping that bowler in your head that bowler doesn't exist anymore, right? And that that is something that they have to know going in. And I would would say, you know, Andy Balboni and anyone else in that sort of, you know, um, island leadership is keeping that thought at all times. We don't want to ruin this guy by just throwing him back in um, for a one-off game, you know. So maybe in a World Cup and you've got a chance of stealing a semi-final position or something um and george jock was there he was like wow now it's worth it i'm not sure it's worth it for a bilateral against bangladesh 
Pranav says, are some balls genuinely unplayable or is it a batter's technique, even if we assume they have similar re- reflexes? There's a reason why lower order batters get Jaffa's more frequently, right? Yes, yeah, so, well, some some balls are genuinely unplayable. So, you know, Crick Info, Crick Info, Crick Viz have their stats where they uh, look at um, expected average. So I think Kane Williamson went out to a ball in the England series where the expected average was one. So... You know, no one is scoring off that ball. Your best chance against that particular ball is defending it, right? Or probably your best chance is edging it short of slip. Um, and Kane Williamson didn't do anything technically wrong. I think Jeffrey Dujon was the first person I ever heard say this publicly, although I'm sure Boycott and, and, and people like him have probably said similar things. But Jeffrey Dujon, I remember once on commentary, very honest commentator, Jeffrey Dujon. And he's very good at saying what needs to be said. And I don't mean that in a you know, right-wing shock jock way. I really mean that in a how to explain cricket to non-cricket people way. And he was basically saying that not, I think he said something like, I think he might've even said 99%, but it was a very high percentage of the time that when a batter is dismissed, that there is an element of a batter's error in there. And that's probably right for 90 to 95% of dismissals. You know, then you have, you know, fifth day wickets, shooters, you have unplayable deliveries, you have cracks, uh, you know, you have, you know, Ryan Harris's ball to Alistair Cook, those sorts of deliveries where there's nothing the batter could do. They actually probably played the ball. There was a, one that Kima Roach bowled to, God, I can't remember who it was now. The um, One of the England openers when they were rotating through all their openers, um, where he bowled wide of the crease coming um, over the wicket and it sort of swung in from behind the eye line and around the front of the batter and took out the top of off stump. I don't know how anyone, there's, there's, there's no technique that can do that. You can't get forward to it. And even if you would, you wouldn't smother a, a ball pitching outside legs that you think is going to pitch outside leg stump. Anyway, that's not how pl- people play. Um, and so there's always an element of batters making small mistakes there. Um, the reason that Tay Lenders uh, struggle with Jaffers more frequently is because they make the ball look a lot better than it is. Essentially, we've talked about a lot on this, especially when it comes to seam, although there's an element of this in spin as well, but it works slightly differently in spin. But especially when it comes in, in to seam is that if you don't have the skills of a top order batter, which is the main skill is the ability to you know to read a ball as they're coming in, to read the ball as it comes out the first two meters of its hand, and then move to where you think the ball is going to go, Good luck playing. There's a reason why scientifically baseballers, batters, um, uh, you know, can't hit a ball, um, shouldn't be able to hit a ball. They're not actually reading the ball. We know that now. We've done enough scientific tests to be able to prove that. What they're really doing is reading everything that comes before that and that first, you know, two or three meters as the ball comes out of the hand. Uh, Taylenders don't have that ability. So they're getting in the wrong positions straight away and they're making things look a little bit worse than they are. Got a couple more questions actually, but I'll play one more ad and we've still got a little bit of time left. All right, welcome back to Uncover with Jared Kimber. Bharat is flying back from India at the moment, or flying from India to Australia. He's flying. Uh, Dr. Vishal Seth says, What is your honest opinion on ODIs becoming 40 overs with two innings of 20 overs each? Makes cricket formats homogenous. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, <laughs> one day cricket, I would say, has been the most changed format ever. And it's not getting more popular. Is I, I don't know why people think there's this magic change that we can do to one day cricket that's going to make it better. Um, it it works. It worked in two very specific environments. It worked in a sort of Australian, New Zealand, South African, English culture where you could get drunk and not take the cricket seriously, and you wouldn't be told off for getting drunk. So it became like a party atmosphere. Great. I don't think sporting events are that 
as much anymore. And so therefore, it's not quite as prominent as perhaps it once was. Also, that's not what cricket, cricket doesn't make it much money off ticket sales, right? It makes much money off TV and streaming. So it doesn't really matter if you have a full house at Headingley. It matters that you can sell the games on TV and streaming and everything else. Uh, and having drunk fans there or not having drunk fans there, it matters to the individual grounds, but it doesn't really matter to the ECB or to the major cricket boards. Um, and then the other thing that it really worked really well was, of course, the ability to have 100 ads um, during the day, especially in the Asian cricket markets, which were a bit more TV dependent even earlier on, uh, you know, probably from mid-90s onwards, um, you know, after the, the lawsuits and everything else, certainly by the late 90s, um, when Indian cricket has um, separated, but even the other cricket boards, uh, it's really, really important. And, and it was popular, right? It was popular with fans and, uh, uh, you know, the 100 ads. I'm not sure the 100 ads really matter as much anymore when it's still better for you to have a game, you know, a four-hour game in prime time than it is to have one game on and then three days later have another game. Like, one-day cricket's going to uh, be smaller and less relevant one way or another as it goes forward, unless something changes with viewing habits or there's another reason why it makes a lot of money or someone like Lalit Modi comes along and makes a uh, a league out of it. I still think it could be a league, weirdly enough. I don't see any reason why it couldn't be. Um, you know, all these sorts of things are all available um, to it. But but as it currently stands, I don't see why making it 20 overs is any better. I, but I, not to say it shouldn't change. I, I, lo- I like the idea of it. Uh, being 50 overs, but taking away some of the bowling limits uh, would be quite interesting. And also, if T20 cricket isn't going to bring in substitutions and everything else, maybe one-day cricket could be the one where they try all that sort of stuff. I'm not talking about the one-off uh, rule, but I'm talking about proper substitution. So you go into each game with five bowlers and, and 10 batters, you know, that sort of a situation. Um, but realistically, I'm not sure there's anything that can be done to one-day cricket that is going to change its place. It's quite clearly the third child i think in cricket at the moment and um we've i've we've seen situations where australia tried the um split innings uh, concept in their domestic tournament it didn't last it didn't get any more interest i'm not sure why anyone thinks it would be more interesting um i think it would be weird <laughs> um if we're really being honest marvel says don't you think uh, do you guys think michael clark is criminally underrated uh, figure in Australian cricket as a captain, as a batter. Uh, no, I think he's fairly well rated for where he was. Um, I think he was a very frustrating player in a very, very good batting era. So he's ended up with a very good batting average. I think he probably worked out his batting very, very late in his career and certainly cashed in beautifully um, at that point. Um, he, If he had worked out what he did late in his career, early in his career, he has a chance of being an all-time great um, Australian player, certainly, but then also probably an all-time world great. But he didn't, and it took him a very long time to do that. As a captain, he was very divisive. I think he had a very bad leadership style. Um, uh, Tactically, I thought he was quite good um, on the field. I thought there were certainly parts of of that that were good. Um, Yeah, and I've always said, I think the Australian public, vilified him at times when maybe he didn't need to be vilified um but he was a very very odd person um and i think that held him back um in many different ways uh from being completely embraced by Australian cricket i think if he was better once he got really really good he was embraced i think the bigger problem early on in his career was that sort of that feeling that he made runs uh you know tucked down the order after better players who had already made runs um 
and that he maybe didn't quite make the most of his opportunities. Um, and then he was a very, very unpopular figure in Australian cricket for a long period of time. And then he made a lot of runs and everyone forgot about that. Very similar to what happened with David Warner after Sandpaper Gate. Um, you know, if, if, he'd, if he'd been consistently as good as he probably could have been uh, all of his career, I think the Australian public would have accepted him a lot different. And that's kind of how the Australian public generally is with their cricketers. Mm -hmm. uh, Busker says, according to you, is cricket a game primarily primarily of natural talent or a learnt game how do i identify talent as there is always a uh, ch challenge of finding a person who would give a blunt assessment is it primarily naturally talent I i've said that if you're a top level international batter uh you you there has to be an element i don't think anyone has ever been taught how to learn how to face over 80 mile an hour bowling without it being something that they have naturally. The rest of the batting around that, I think is something that you can grow on. Um, and I think you can uh, learn the game and obviously that, but that basic skill of being able to read the ball over the first two meters and then make a decision uh, that puts you in the best possible position. I don't know of anyone who has had the ability to take a very good club player um, and turn them into that kind of player who doesn't already have that kind of skill. It's possible that it's happened. It's not something that we've tracked brilliantly. We've only been tracking, you know, this sort of information over the last 20, 25 years. So from that perspective, that is a primary um, natural talent. If you're talking about a fast bowler as well, I don't think you can turn anyone from a 70-mile-an-hour bowler to a 90-mile-an-hour bowler, for instance. I think you could probably turn them from 70 to 75 and from 80 to 85, but I'm not sure that you can skip those other things. So again, there is obviously a primary uh, natural talent element to all of those things. So, so from that perspective, I think that that is involved. But I also think that at any one time in professional cricket, there's four. There's I think there's four thousand five hundred players in professional cricket around the world at the moment. If you work for FICA and you want to update me on those numbers, but I think that's roughly right, especially if you count the women. But if you just look at men, I reckon it's around 4,000, 4,200. If that's, if that's the case, let's say 60% of those can bat, right? So of those 67, 60% who can bat, they have primary natural talent. They all have that ability to cicade the ball, to be able to see it, to read things, um, to make informed decisions before hand so that because they can't react to the ball it's physically impossible to react to a ball moving at that pace so then what you're talking about next is what you can learn you know a player who is very very good at getting off strike is probably going to end up with a very high batting average you know joe root and, and kane williamson are probably the experts on on this um in, in world cricket of it's very hard to bowl to them over a long period of time because they if they want to at any stage they can get a single and 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 move away that means that they are very, very tough to be able to bowl to. Their actual primary natural talent perhaps isn't that much higher um, than it, than another very, very good player, but some of the things that they've learnt um, and they've been able to do is a little bit different. And so that that is when, you know, you're, you need the primary natural talent to make the top level of cricket, but you're not going to be – there's not that much difference between James Vince and Joe, Joe Root right? And yet one of them is going to end up as a test failure and the other one's going to end up as one of the best test batters of all time. There's a few little things that are different, but one is that James Vince doesn't have the ability to get off strike the way that Joe Root does. The other one is that James Vince doesn't really factor in game situations in the way that Joe Root has the ability to be able to see them. That is, those are 
quite often learn skills that people have learned over long periods of time. You see, you see a lot of these uh, Richard Hadley, Imran Khan, Daniel Vittori, uh, Ravi Jadeja, these players who come into cricket very, very young because of one skill, right? And they clearly have a bit of a secondary skill. You look at Richard Hadley's early record and he could clearly bat a little bit. There's nothing to say he couldn't bat at all, but he becomes a much better player. Imran Khan becomes a much better player. That's the learn stuff of it. But if they didn't have that primary natural talent, look at how many tests Glenn McGrath plays. Look at how many tests Jimmy Anderson has played. They can't, their eyes don't cicade. They can't pick the ball up properly. They're just trying to react to the ball uh, more often than not, right? And sometimes they'll they'll see something and they'll take a chance on it. Maybe there'll be a ball that they can slash away for four or, or whatever, or they, they can get behind it on a good day on a slow pitch or whatever that situation may be. But they have played, what, 300 test matches between them, and they don't. And neither of them got to the ability where they could do that. They're two of the smartest cricketers we've ever had. That tells you that there's a huge amount of primary natural talent involved in cricket. All right, Jonas says, Blair Tickner was only a part-time cricketer up until COVID. He was also a barista. Yeah, I mean, he... Uh, I, he does play like someone like that. To be fair, I've got a feeling that we've got a friend in common and that they reached out to me quite a few years ago. So he was there and thereabouts at that stage. He's not, so he's not, you know, a cricketer that was out of the system. Um, but certainly there was a lot of players who um, upskilled themselves there. I, I still, I think he's an interesting player because I'm not sure what his main skill is in test match cricket at, at the moment is. Um, and yet New Zealand have decided that he's their man and he's getting wickets, but it's really, really interesting. Dushara says, what do you think about the uh, final of the Legends League tonight? I didn't know there was a final of Legends League tonight. I think it was the Legends League who asked me out there last year and they gave me like five days notice before the start of the tournament. Come out! And I was and I was like, why? What do you even want me to do? It was really, really weird. Um, Look, if I'm paid to go out there and I can do a bunch of podcasts with former players, although I know a lot of those former players, I think, in some cases, I think some of the interviews they offered me, I was like, I'm friends with these people. I um, can get them on my podcast myself. Um, you know, I, I still think it would be great to go out there, maybe get a bunch of them around. There's some things I would like to do with some of those people, um, some projects I'd like to do, get them all around the table from that point of view. But as far as the cricket goes, could not give a shit. Yuvashant says, uh, what do you think about a series between Pakistan and New Zealand in the middle of the IPL? Look, I think it's inevitable that some teams are just going to have to play during the IPL just because the schedule is nuts, right? Like they're going to have, it's going to have to happen. It'd be interesting to see how much interest it gets around the world, but Pakistan probably have to continue playing even when the IPL is on, I would think. And I, I actually, I think there might be other teams who might start to move back towards that a little bit and go, okay, well, we might miss out on our top two or three players. We might not. We might not even have that many players who are playing in the IPL anyway who are genuine test players. And so going ahead, I would think that we, this is something we might see um, occasionally pop up. Um, I don't, especially as the IPL gets longer and longer, um, you know, and eventually it will be three months and four months and maybe six or eight months you're not going to have a choice, right? You're going to have to play during the IPL and you're going to have to make decisions on that. So um, it'd be very interesting going ahead to see um, how those things go. But yeah, as as it currently stands, um, uh, I'm not surprised, but obviously people are going to play a lot less. Dr. Vishal Seth uh, with another super chat there. I'm not sure if he means his next question here uh, or if he wants me to ask because he's sent me a super chat, but he has asked another question, but I'll ask it. And this is, I think, was this about one day cricket? Is that what he asked before? Yeah, I forgot. 
Oh, he's saying that he's finding himself disinterested, recently trying to sit through 100 overs, and that makes him sad. Um, look, it's always... I, I don't know why people don't... Go, go back and watch the games from the 90s, Dr. Vishal Seth. They were boring as batshit. There's so many boring one-day games. As a commentator, I would say that the one-day cricket, is, and as a writer, the absolute worst. Re- they're really long days, and there are huge parts of them that don't seem to matter that much. I th- let's say T20 cricket was never invented. I always thought that the best, and you could do this in T20 cricket too, of course. I always thought that the best case scenario was in T20, in one day cricket, what you would do is you would have two players out for the first 10 overs, three players out for the next 10 overs, four, if I got that right, or two players out for the, whatever, I've got my numbers wrong. But you you stagger the players going out um, as the game goes on, which are, which means that players have the ability to attack more. But the problem with that is that, when you have more fielders in the ring, you're probably going to have more wickets as well. So you're going to have more collapses, which we have seen at times. I think there's a romanticism about one day cricket. I think it's always been a fairly flawed format. I think it was exciting in a way that T20 cricket is now exciting in that it was so different to test cricket. It brought different elements. And especially when players started to take it seriously in the late nineties, you know, that the new methods, the new theory, you know, we had all these new theories coming through and, you know, Test cricket hadn't had as many of those, right? And every time, like, a team had worked out something in test cricket, they kind of dominated. But that wasn't quite the case in one-day cricket, right? Like, South Africa would be like, they, you know, they take Alan Donald will bowl first change and, like, a few teams try that. And then they're like, yeah, that's actually kind of stupid. That doesn't make any sense. That just works for Alan Donald. Let's go away from that, right? Sri Lanka's like, well, we're going to smash the ball in the first power play. And everyone's like, oh, we're going to smash the ball in the power play. Then after time, everyone's like, Actually, this doesn't work as well as we think it does, right? And part of the reason that Sri Lanka could do that is because they had incredible strike manipulators in the middle overs to back that up. And if you don't have that, um, then you're in all sorts of trouble. You know, and South Africa trial these all rounder. So I, I thought there were times where one day cricket was a little bit more um, uh, dynamic, um, and now T Twenty cricket is just far more dynamic. So I'm not sure what is left of one day cricket that is. Great. Other than the fact that you do get the ability for someone to play a proper innings over the the course of a test match, or what's the other way of looking at it? Or um, yeah, proper spell. Like there, I think there's something quite cool about the fact that you still get those two things. It's still cricket, and I, you know, it's. I I think I've said this before. One day cricket is probably like my fourth favorite form of sport. Um, you know, I probably have test cricket. T20 cricket, basketball, all up there, and then one day cricket's just behind it. So it's still something I really, really like. But when I compare it to the other two, I don't get the same amount of impact of it. And I've kind of always felt that way, certainly as I've been older. Um, uh, and so I wonder then, and, and I know I'm not the only one from you know comments, well, if, I, if I write long-form stuff on one-day cricket, unless it's something very, very dramatic, it it's very rare that I get any sort of feedback from it at all. People just don't engage with it. And I think that's what the format has become. And I don't think we should just keep it around. I think you say, um, you, you wish that it stays relevant. I don't think anything should have to stay relevant. I think it should stay relevant if it's good. And I don't think splitting it up into two 20 over matches is going to make it any more relevant than it was beforehand. Um, there is a reason why things have moved on. And it, it served a purpose in the period in which it got popular. You know, that boom of of cricket on TV. And as I said, the drinking culture of cricket, um, you know, in the West, that really served a purpose there. Whereas now I'm not sure what its purpose is for cricket boards going ahead. There's, um, unless you could find a way 
to completely re-energize it. And I don't think that's splitting up the innings. I think it would be actually changing the way that you think about the sport um, in its entirety, which goes back to my idea of having, you know, five batters and, and 10 ball, uh, sorry, five bowlers and 10 batters or something like that. But even then, I think it's too late. And I think if you came up with that good idea now, T20 cricket, some league in the world would steal it anyway. So I don't think there's anything that you can do to keep one day cricket relevant into the future. The only thing I would say is if we had a proper ODI league, which was sold as a league, and we had regular one day games being played all the time, which we did have in that, you know, that little period recently, but we didn't, it wasn't really a proper league. But if, if we had something like that and one day cricket then became, it's a really good streaming product because it is a very long full day, um, which, which, you know, people can switch on their phone at any, at any stage. There's something in that if you do do a proper league, but it's too late. The ICC is not going to make any leagues. No boards want to be involved with any proper leagues that they run that no one wants to give them any power. It's gone. So the only other chance would be if you got a bunch of um, owners of uh, IPL franchises and got them to make a, a league or help fund a league or something like that. Um, I think it's uh, completely gone. Um, anyway, thank you very much, everyone, for coming on Uncovered and uh, being an absolute pleasure as always. We're, Barrett, I have, I'm talking to him. I'm hoping he's going to come back soon. Um, uh, but uh, but at the moment, he's uh, off uh, traveling back from India. But um, if not, we've had plenty of content, plenty of podcasts recently. And as I said, there's some really good ones. We've got one on Neil Wagner coming up, and we also have a really good one on um, on the Bangladesh team, and then a bunch of others coming through. So please um, go and listen to all of those and help support. We got, I got the Bodyline uh, T-shirt one on here, which is, for those who don't know, it's the one with the batter with a broken arm, which, of course, uh, for me is maybe a little bit too... Uh, uh, on the nose, but uh, thanks to them for sending that one through. And I will see you again next time, which will be for Wagon Wheel in a couple of days, I assume. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon, and there are many other extras available there as well. There is a link to the show notes. The show is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. Barrett Sundaresan is my co-host. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great production team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orajoti, Senapayi, and Maida Akam producing podcasts. And Makunda Bandredi is the head of our YouTube account. Podcast Network.